as my husbandry has advanced, like I use substrate and we've got naturalistic decor, like switching to overhead heating and UVB and stuff. I can't do that for the neurologically disabled ones. And even ones who don't have neuro issues, like, you know, if like my, my gecko Elia, she has severe metabolic bone disease. She can't walk as well as other leopard geckos. She can't have substrate because she just, she doesn't move as well because she gets stuck underneath her limbs when she tries to move. So it's like a big bummer as someone who's like advancing more to the naturalistic side of things that has been since like, I don't know, 2019 to not be able to do that for the neurologically disabled ones. And it's not something that I had ever really considered, you know, when I was keep, when I first started keeping reptiles is that I would have, yeah, I will get a lot of questions about like, why are you keeping those ones in like really simplistic, smaller enclosures with paper towel? And I'm like, because if I don't, they'll die. Like that's as simple as it gets. Like, with with neurologically disabled geckos, it's about minimizing stress, especially for enigmas. Welcome back to Animals at Home. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica from Jessica's Animal Friends YouTube channel. I'm sure many of you are familiar with her. She has quite a large following on YouTube and Instagram and has been a content creator for quite a few years now. Jessica has essentially a sanctuary for animals that are needing of new homes, whether they were disabled or have neurological issues, which we'll talk about in a second, or just animals that you know ended up on Craigslist and have a very poor quality of life. She's been keeping reptiles for about a decade and somewhere along that way decided that she would dedicate her time and her energy and her money to helping reptiles in need. And we discussed that. We discussed the stress that is associated with caring for such a large number of animals, as well as attempting to produce content in that domain. But the I'd say the largest chunk of this episode has to do with actually the the main reason I brought Jessica on, and that was to discuss morph and genetic inbreeding related issues and disabilities in leopard geckos. I think Jessica has about 35 leopard geckos. Most of them have some sort of physical or or neurological disability. Most of that is due to some morphological trait or some inbreeding and Jessica does a great job in this episode of laying out which morphs cause which issues and how they're distinguishable you know what they look like specifically to the eye and you know you know what what's the difference between an enigma and a white and yellow syndrome which is a really common I think misconception for for many people when it gets into leopard geckos and she also discussed how do you care for those animals now that they are in this you know, disabled state. How do you care for those animals so that they can live out a happy, you know, quote, happy and, and high high standard of living life while having this issue? You can't care for them the same way you can a robust, healthy leopard gecko. So she talks about that as well. And I think this is a great toolkit for anybody that wants to get into helping animals that are in that sort of disabled umbrella. It And it's also a good episode to maybe, you know, again, let's pump the brakes on these morphs. We are creating major issues here. And if, if, if there weren't people like Jessica, those animals would literally end up in the garbage and I hate to say it that way but that's probably the truth that that these animals that are not healthy they they have a very poor quality of life and we don't have enough people like Jessica that are willing to actually go to the work to care for these animals so I think we probably want to kind of circle back and make sure we are producing healthy proper animals before we get too excited about interesting colors but anyway we talk about that as well and I think it's a it's a really important conversation if you're looking for more information on this episode head to animalsathomenetwork.com 
Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You can find an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you would like to help produce the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home. I think we're very close to 100 patrons. We're at like 96 or 97 at the time of recording this intro. If you would like to help us get to 100, which I would love, you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home. And again, those are the people that help produce the show. It's expensive for me to produce the show. It takes me a ton of time and quite a lot of money each month. And without the Patreon, this podcast would not exist. So if you're someone that does absorb the content and you do have you know a couple bucks lying around extra each month and you want to help produce the show, that's a great way you can do that. And if you don't have the means to help on Patreon, the best thing you can do is share the show. Share it on Facebook or Instagram or share it with your friends and family. Let's get the listenership to grow just by sharing it. It's an easy way to do that. Let's jump into this episode. Enjoy. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to having you on. There's a bunch of different topics I want to talk about. It's particularly, you know, the the animals you're working with and sort of the the tilt towards uh, animals with disabilities and, and and neurological issues and whatnot, especially on the the leopard gecko side, and I know that's a a big area of top or discussion for lots of people. So we will get into that. But one question I normally start with, and I'm starting to get tired of asking it because almost everybody has the same question <laughs> or everybody has the same answer. But I, I feel like you may have a different one. Maybe not. We'll find out. Is how mm-hmm. how did you get into to keeping? Because you didn't start keeping that long ago, and and now you have quite a large group of animals you're caring for, and uh, you know a whole story associated with that. But but what initially brought you to to reptile keeping when i was in college i i've always loved animals and i was like i had my my dog like my childhood dog passed away in 2012 when i was a senior in high school and i was like man i really i really miss having like an animal to care for and so i was like i'm gonna get rats and so i found three rats for rehoming at um nwi chinchilla rescue which was like an hour and a half for me brought them home and that like kind of reawoke as an adult like oh, I need to have more animals in my life. And so I actually kept rats and fish before I ever kept reptiles. And then I'd say probably like 20, 2014 is when I started like sharing what I do on Instagram. And then when I did that, I realized how many reptiles were really cool and how because I was connecting with reptile people on Instagram. And I saw for the first time, like, I always thought, I might get canceled for this. I always thought leopard geckos were ugly um, <laughs> when I was a kid. Because I would see them in pet stores and they had like big regrown tails or they were really underweight. They had stuck shed or whatever. And I was like, those don't look well. Like, I don't want, I don't want to ever have any of those. But then there were like a few accounts that I followed. Some were breeders and some were just pet keepers. And I was like, wow, leopard geckos like actually look pretty cool. And then so I started keeping those. And then once I started keeping those, it was over. I mean, I was, this was back in... 2014, so almost 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also got a bearded dragon and a crested gecko. And I originally was just drawn to the idea of like, I want to keep reptiles that don't eat insects. And then I got a crested gecko and she was eating insects. I was I was like, well, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to have to get You're over it. it. And then yeah. <laughs> once I got over it, I got a bearded dragon. So <laughs> then I had a whole roach colony. So it kind of, it went, you know, I, I guess I could get pretty comfortable pretty quickly with it. But yeah, I just, I've liked animals of all kinds. Like I said, I started with rats and with fish. I actually found fish too time consuming with little reward. So <laughs> I got out of fish keeping, but I still have some aquatics. Like I have axolotl tanks behind me, um, a polydarium over here. But yeah, fish were cool, but not not my thing. Sorry to the fish people. Um, but it just happened because I saw cool species through other people. And I really had like an interest in taking care of an animal since my dog had died when I was in high school. Um, but I waited a few years after that. So I'd say probably like junior year of or sophomore year of college. 
But yeah, it's been ever since then. When you were acquiring animals, were you also working towards building a social media following at all? Or, or did those things happen in tandem? Or how, how did that work? Yeah, so it just so happened that like I was posting my animals on my regular Instagram and some people were commenting like, I don't want to see your ugly rats. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> rude. So I was like, I'll make my own page for them. And so then I did and it helped me connect with reptile people. Um, at that point in time, I had already had... I didn't have any leopard geckos, but I had like a bearded dragon, a crested gecko, an axolotl, again, it's back there, and my rats and some fish. Um, so not anything like crazy, but then I saw, again, people keeping leopard geckos. And I saw so many of them that were like either had neurological issues or were disabled or needed rescuing of some kind. And not just leopard geckos, but that was primarily it for me is because I saw that there were so many. And I was like, okay, well, like I can kind of do something about this. And I wanted to start keeping leopard geckos at that point. But um, yeah, I just posted them on Instagram kind of by accident uh, because someone complained that I shouldn't be posting them on my personal Instagram because I didn't want to see them. And I was like, okay, cool. I realized then that's a very weird thing. Like animal keeping itself is really small. And I can kind of forget that sometimes. I'm sure you can too, because that's the community that we're in. Mm -hmm. But then you talk to like someone who doesn't and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah, That's like, what you keep. You? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it happened kind of by accident. Like I just was sharing them there because someone had complained. And then I kind of fell into a community of reptile keepers. And then I've been doing it ever since. You already mentioned some of those uh, noticing animals with disabilities and whatnot. How, how, was there just a smooth transition from being a sort of a pet keeper to having, you know, what you call a sanctuary or, or how did that evolve? Did you, was there an animal, a particular animal that you came in contact with that you're like, I feel like I need to spend my time doing this or? I knew from pretty much day one, like when I got my rats, I adopted them as full grown adults. Um, they had been adopted and returned in their life. So they had already had a few homes. Um, so I knew from the beginning, I wanted to do things in like an adopt slash like rescue way and then my first reptile i got was a pet only she was a slow grower like they couldn't even confirm if she was male or female because she wouldn't grow fast enough like she was already years old by the time i got her and she was still so small when i got franklin my bearded dragon i found him for rehoming on craigslist from a guy who's getting out of keeping them so like i had kind of always started out that way but then when i got on instagram i was like connecting with people and i saw you know like eye defects or, you know, in leopard geckos or issues with like them having missing toes or limbs from stuck shed or metabolic bone disease. And because they're such a commonly kept reptile, I saw a lot of that. And I would, I would see that on Craigslist. I would see that on Instagram from people who were keeping or producing geckos with neurological issues. So there was actually an account that's no longer active, but they started Happy Gecko Rescue, which was like only a, um, a thing for like nine months or something before they completely went off the internet and they've never been back since. But they got a group of like 20 something leopard geckos from a breeder who was like leaving the community um, or like getting out of breeding. And then they were rehoming them to people who followed them and like filled out all the information and like paid for shipping and everything. So my first leopard gecko was actually from that situation. Um, and that I wanted to get one that was like already healthy and stuff so that I could learn about how to keep them and then start rescuing after that. So I had Fritz first. And then after Fritz, I started getting them off of Craigslist. Ones that were skinny, ones that had stuck shed, ones that were in really dirty enclosures. So I'd say like from the beginning, it's that's been kind of my avenue of reptile keeping. Wasn't like going the, the route of like uh, buying from a breeder, buying from an expo. But once I like started to acquire leopard geckos, um, probably had like six or seven of them. 
And I was like used to caring for them and like understood how to make sure that like all of their husbandry needs were met. Then I saw an enigma with enigma syndrome on Craigslist, got brought her home and then started working with neuro ones. And then once I had just a couple of those and I had experience, it was like um, a lot of... Because Instagram back in the day was a lot of breeders. Um, the community wasn't pet keepers. It was a lot of a lot of hobbyist breeders. And they would breed morphs that might be problematic, you know, like Enigma or white and yellow, which we can talk about white and yellow later before the white and yellow people come for me. Um, <laughs> but because they will, <laughs> um, whether it was like down to morph or down to inbreeding or incubation fluctuation or anything like that. I kind of became known as like a person who like, hey, this girl keeps pet only leopard geckos. Like, and so I would quickly have people in my DM saying, hey, I have this one. Hey, I have this one. And that's how I've ended up with where I'm at today with like 35 of them. So when when this was happening, like were you conceptualizing yourself as a potentially somebody who would be considered yourself as a, as a rescue or, or a sanctuary? Or at the time, were you just sort of feel like you're... Heart, your heartstrings were being tugged at when you saw these animals that were on Craigslist. I and mean, there's no shortage of animals in horrible conditions on Craigslist or Kijiji in Canada. I mean, there's a giant list of them. So mm-hmm. if you were somebody that was like, I feel like I want to help these animals, you would have an endless supply. Were you mm-hmm. doing that as a, like, as a keeper or were you thinking like, okay, I'm going to actually establish a, a place for these animals? Because I mean, at, at some point you would imagine you're going to hit a cap. Yeah, I think as a keeper, I think that's how, I think it was a gradual transition to like, oh, I, I would like to keep a couple more leopard geckos. So I'm going to get them from these situations. And then it was like, I also became known as this person who takes in, you know, animals born with like defect or disability. And then so people would ask and I'm like, well, I have space and I have time and I have money. Sure. And then I think so. Yeah, definitely. The last few years, I for sure have like considered what I do sanctuary work. But like in the beginning, it was definitely just it, it transitioned that way without me even like really meaning for it to, which I'm fine with. It wasn't like it was something that happened against my will. I don't mean for it to sound that way, but it wasn't something I set out in life. Like I'm going to own an animal sanctuary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just became that. And mm-hmm. do you remember when you were first encountering some of these like neurological disorders? Like I think we'll get into it in more in depth a little bit later, but I'm just wondering if you remember when you started seeing these, you know, morph related issues pop up, do you remember how it, made you feel because sometimes like I remember when I first saw like years ago start seeing spider and things and these like morphs being perpetuated in the hobby and and you're seeing these neurological issues associated with it I just remember being so confused like I don't know why why this is even a thing and I I get like you know once in a while an animal is going to come out with an issue but the fact that we know the link it was very confusing to me do you remember having that experience with lover geckos I remember in the beginning feeling like if we know that enigma is a problem why are we allowing people like there's this whole argument of like we we should police our own community right we should hold our own people accountable well where has that been um because when i first started in the community i would have people who bought from a certain breeder who i'm not going to name so don't get sued who would name who would say hey i got this gecko from this breeder they said it was enigma syndrome free it is most definitely not and most of my enigmas have come from people who bought them from honestly there was only two or three different breeders um who keep popping up again time after time and they would say you know oh you know i, I brought this one home or i purchased it for breeding purposes and i'm like what? if you're purchasing an enigma for breeding purposes you're a part of the problem unfortunately if you purchased it just as a pet unknowingly, because a lot of people who would breed enigmas wouldn't say like, hey, this one you know, might have or has the capacity to have a neurological disorder. It just, for me, screams irresponsibility 
lack of ethics. Like, why would you? I understand the the urge to want to create something that looks different and new, especially when like back in the day on Instagram, people would post like highly edited photos of their animals and get like a bunch of follows because we're like, wow, that looks crazy. Um, and a lot of times they'd be like enigmas or white and yellows. Um, cause they do honestly, like they look really cool. Like that's just the unfortunate side of things. And they also enhance the look of other morphs that are added into it. So yeah, I just right now it just makes me feel like quietly outraged. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so used to it at this point that I don't have like a visceral reaction when I see a story like that. I'm like, who's surprised? Not me. Um, but back in the day it was just like, why? And I used to be so much more um, like emotionally outspoken about those things, but I understand people don't respond well to that online. So now I just take a, a quieter approach to it. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's just like, it's infuriating that, you know, especially as someone who works with them and sees what a struggle it is for them to sometimes just function. And it's like, why would you ever want to create this? It just, just for a little bit of money, essentially. That's, that's what it comes down to. Or like some followers online or curiosity. It's all so very selfish. Yeah. Well, and that's what's always so frustrating. It feels like this is such a classic issue in, in, in reptile keeping is that the, the rescues and the people who like yourself who are working with the animals with the disabilities, like you're working with the collateral damage of the morph industry. And then for some reason, you're the quietest voice. And I'm not saying you are trying to be quiet. I'm just saying you're the voice that gets dampened the most. People just like, ah, we don't want to listen to that. Who cares? Like, and, and then there you are with 35 geckos, a bunch of them with neurological disorders that have, you have to care for them in a different fashion because they, they aren't normal. And uh, we just want to swipe that under the rug as quickly as possible. And, and especially people who are breeding it you know it's just it's very very bizarre yeah i found myself at the at the end of a lot of and like i'll be i'll be honest most times it's men so like i find uncomfortable having conflict with men in the first place just because there's a different dynamic there i found myself at the receiving end of a lot of um like people in like breeding groups like talking bad about me or like you know because they're upset that i'm talking about something that they profit from which i understand um and you know people have like directly messaged me or had conflict with me online um like in a live stream or something um like mentioning me not that i'm in the live stream but just mentioning you're talking about me um because they don't like that i speak out about you know especially when it comes to white and yellows like most people are are comfortable most readers are comfortable saying like yeah enigma is not something we should mess with white and yellow is trickier because when it comes to enigmas any enigma that you breed, no matter what breeder says otherwise, any enigma that you breed has the capacity to have a neurological disorder. It doesn't mean that the symptoms will be strong right from birth, right? But typically, if they go through like a stressor event, like for females, it's usually ovulation and egg laying. But it could be something like shipping. It could be poor health. It could be like if you just drop them, you know, and they have a bad enough fall. It's just one stressor event can trigger the onset of symptoms or make the symptoms worse. Like some people who are breeders who have like hundreds or thousands of geckos, like they're probably not going to spend enough time to watch the behavior of every single enigma that they hatch. So of course, they're not going to know if it's displaying a little bit of symptoms, a little bit of head bobbing, a little bit of tilting, a little bit of circling. They might not notice, you know? Um, And also a lot of them don't tongue feed, they bowl feed. So like a lot of the symptoms for like a neurological gecko, it's going to happen when they're excited. So like Mm -hmm. if you're 
tongue feeding them, that's when you're going to see it the most. But if you're just leaving insects in a bowl, you're not going to see that that behavior showing or that those symptoms showing. The difference between enigma and white and yellow is that enigma... But before you go to that, can you tell just tell me visually too? Because I, I actually have no clue what they look like. Can you, it's just with the enigma, what, what does that morph actually look like for people that have no idea? It can look really different because enigma enhances the traits of other morphs that it's mixed with. Okay. But in general, enigmas have like a purple or white full tail. They might have like a single purple or, or white or um, like light colored spot on their head or their body. Um, they're also covered in tiny spots. So like you, when you've seen a leopard, I can have like the kind of bigger leopard looking spots, but enigmas will have super tiny spots. Um, and honestly, some enigmas are crossed with white and yellow. They don't have any spots. You know, some enigmas are crossed with super snow. So they're covered in spots, but they don't have that like, you know, fully purple tail or whatever. It's, it's going to be different depending on what you mix with. And if you look at my enigmas, they all look different from the next. Like there's not a single one that looks the same. They also have cool eye trait, but it also depends on what they're mixed with. So it's, there's that aspect of like what they look like. And then with white and yellow, they have just a higher contrast on their sides. Like the bottom of a leopard gecko is white and the top half is like yellow or orange, right? But with white and yellow, the color starts higher on the body. So like they have more white on their sides, hence white and yellow. So there's just a a higher contrast of starting on their sides. And also a lot of white and yellows will have really um, like sharper, brighter, like white or orange coloring on their face. Um, when you mix white and yellow with like Enigma, for example, yeah, it produces really cool looking geckos. Like that's just unfortunately how it is. Um, also, white and yellow itself is is cool looking. Um, a lot of times they'll mix white and yellows with like one of my geckos, um, Benjin. He's a white and yellow super snow. So he has all white body. Um, except where his white and yellow shows up, which is not a color. It's just the fact that the the white starts up higher on his body. So he has spots, but they're only like on his back. They don't go onto his sides at all or his legs. Um, and he has super tiny, small body because he's super snow mixed with white and yellow. Um, and who knows? He could have enigma. I don't know his full genetics, um, which is kind of a problem. A lot of times people who know that they're breeding problematic geckos and then... Um, send them to to sanctuary or send them to a pet only home will say, well, I don't want to tell you the genetics because they don't want people to breed them, which I totally get. I'm not a breeder. Like you could, you could tell me and it would help me kind of figure out their, their, their issues more, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are, are those, are both Enigma and white and yellow, are they simple, simple, uh, simple, um, genetically? Like, do they, if you take Enigma and Enigma, are you going to get all Enigmas or is it, is it, or is it more of a, uh, a complex genetic trait. That's the word I'm looking for. So Enigma started from a genetic mutation from a normal pairing and you can't cross Enigma with Enigma. The offspring will not produce, like they won't grow in the egg. So you can only cross Enigma. They won't even live, like they'll die basically. Okay. Yeah. So there's no super Enigmas. They don't live. Um, And I think the same is for white and yellow. I'm not hundred percent sure. White and yellow is more complicated because like I was saying earlier, um, with Enigma, you will have a neurological issue. It's not, it's only a matter of like when or um, if a stressor event happens, some geckos are just born right at the gate with neuro issues. But like with white and yellow, it's from irresponsible breeding. So like white and yellow itself isn't inherently problematic as a morph. It's just that because people were breeding them early on and they were inbreeding them, then there was a line or a couple lines probably 
of people breeding these white and yellows separate from other white and yellows that developed neurological issues. And then those people were not responsible. And when they got mixed into other lines, then they're introducing neurological problems. And you can have a gecko. So say you pair a white and yellow with, I don't know, a max knob, whatever. Say you pair those two. You have one offspring come out visually a white and yellow, and you have one off- one offspring comes out it's not visually white and yellow. The offspring that comes out not visually white and yellow could have a neurological issue because it's not tied to the morph. It's just tied to the fact that there's inbred genetics and white gotcha. and uh, neurological issues can be seen in all kinds of morphs. But unfortunately, because like I said, enigma is for sure like that's just tied to it. That's just how it is. It comes with the um, with the, with the morph. But with white and yellow, it doesn't. So you can have. You can have people breeding white and yellow, not realizing that this line is a problem. And so there's been responsible breeders who have spent like generations of geckos making sure that it's a syndrome-free line. Then you also have irresponsible people or people who don't, who aren't going to pay enough attention to see if there's going to be neurological issues. And then that creates, um, creates a problem when they sell them to other people saying that they're fine. And then you have people um, with neurologically disabled geckos. People who are like upset that I talk about it often mm-hmm. are breeders who breed white and yellows because they're like, well, I don't see any of that in my collection. That's not a real thing. We've fixed this already. And I'm like, you have. That doesn't mean somebody else has. So like some hobbyist breeder who's breeding them. Um, I Like the same year that I was, you know, getting some flack about talking about it, I had brought home two geckos with white and yellow syndrome. So it's not like it's not still out there. And they also have beef with the fact that it's called white and yellow syndrome because they don't want it to be associated with the morph. But unfortunately, if if there are white and yellows with the syndrome and that's just how it was dubbed before I even came into the into the community, like that's what that's the term I'm going to keep using. Just so people are aware that hey, this could potentially be an issue with a white and yellow if you go to purchase or breed them. Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. So for the the Enigma side, sounds very similar to like the Jaguar carpet python and the spider ball python for mm-hmm. people who are listening. It sounds like it's an, in, an incomplete dominant trait. And if you do mix, you know, an Enigma, Enigma, you're going to get a baby that doesn't live just like you would if you spread spider to spider. And it's also a pattern reduction and a neurological, a neurological disorder associated with it. That's what I find so fascinating is that when you tinker with the phenotype, the outs, the exterior coloration of the skin, you're also tinkering with internal systems. And one, for whatever reason, that pattern reduction also has something to do with the, the nervous system. Who knows what it is? And uh, and so that that's interesting. I wonder how similar that might be from spider and jaguar with an enigma. It sounds very similar. But then it sounds like the white and yellow is more like almost like a hip dysplasia in dogs where some lines of purebred dogs have no issues with it and some lines of the same uh, same breed will all will will have issues because that line has hip dysplasia in it, and so what you're saying is they're not it's not 100 guaranteed that a white and yellow will have white and yellow syndrome, but there are lines out there, and especially if the breeders aren't paying attention, they may be putting them out into the market without realizing. Yeah, and it's also like not even just when it comes to white and yellow, it's not even just neurological. Like I have geckos who come from parents that are white and yellow that either are or aren't, doesn't matter. They will sometimes have like visual defects. So like their eyes might be a little wonky. Their one leg might come out shorter than the rest. Um, And like people just are quick to say, oh, it was an incubation fluctuation. From keeping a lot of geckos that people are saying, oh, it's incubation fluctuation. Well, I'll continue to say that just so I don't get, you know, just flamed online. I kind of have a theory that like, you know, physical defects can happen from inbreeding as well. And if we already know that neurological issues happen with white and yellows because of inbreeding, then my guess it's probably also going to cause some other issues as well. So I have like 
white, I have one white nail that has like completely deformed eyelids. Um, and she had like skin compensate like over her eyes. So like half of her eyes are obstructed. Um, I have another one that has one small eye, one big eye, like I neuro issues and eye defects. So common. Like when you're going to see something that happens like for genetic reasons or potentially incubation fluctuation, it's like always those two things or limb mm. differences. Interesting. Yeah. It's, um, it's it's funny hearing you say all this because obviously inbreeding and the sort of bottleneck genetics are creating this issue and, and you know we know that inbreeding eventually you're going to have inbreed you know genetic breakdown just by you know inbreeding that's just what happens and and it also happens a lot in the snake world you know ball pythons obviously have a lot of morphs as well but leopard geckos probably have the most they're probably equivalent in some ways like leopard geckos have a ton of morphs as well and people are breeding them for morphs but snakes have less parts to go wrong they don't have limbs they don't have eyelids and and, and even when when you're talking about balance issues they don't they don't fall over you know they don't have their they're not having to balance on four legs. So I think a lot of that stuff kind of gets hidden. And, and in leopard geckos, it's obvious you're going to have toe issues or leg issues and, mm-hmm. and there's more development that has to happen and hence more problems can arise. Yeah, That's just my own theory. I don't know. But that's just what I think as you're, as you're talking. No, yeah. A lot of people, whenever I talk about Enigma, I feel like I feel like a few years ago, it was a very popular topic because a few creators have made videos about spider uh, ball python. But like, whenever I talk about Enigma, everyone's always like, oh, that's like spider. I'm like, I know. Mm-hmm. I know it is because like, you know, I've seen, I have had friends who have kept spiders um, who bought them without knowing there was going to be an issue and then saw neurological issues in them. So I've, I haven't worked with ball pythons firsthand, but I've seen, I've seen what it looks like. And like, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so very similar, um, yeah. which is sad. And, and so when you're dealing with these, these geckos with neurodisorders or any other issues, what are some things that you're having to do care wise to make sure they're, you know, able to adequately live? Like how different is the care? So different. So I have, and, and it's funny, like as someone, like when I first started keeping reptiles, like a lot of the advice I would get were from breeders. So I was keeping things pretty simplistic. Like they all had like 20 gallons when 10 gallons were still the recommendation, right? Like I was never doing something under what they needed but like i wouldn't keep the substrate or i'd keep like you know pretty clean simple environments or whatever um and then like as my husbandry has advanced like i use substrate and we've got naturalistic decor like switching to overhead heating and UVB and stuff i can't do that for the neurologically disabled ones and even ones who don't have neuro issues like you know, if like my, my gecko, Elia, she has severe metabolic bone disease. She can't walk as well as other leopard geckos. She can't have substrate because she just, it, she doesn't move as well because yeah. she gets stuck underneath her limbs when she tries to move. So it's like a big bummer as someone who's like advancing more to the naturalistic side of things and has been since like, I don't know, 2019 to not be able to do that for the neurologically disabled ones. And it's not something that I had ever really considered, you know, when I was keep when I first started keeping reptiles is that I would have yeah I will get a lot of questions about like why are you keeping those ones in like really simplistic smaller enclosures with paper towel and I'm like because if I don't they'll die like that's yeah. as simple as it gets like with with neurologically disabled geckos it's about minimizing stress especially for enigmas all of my enigmas are in 15 gallon enclosures uh 18 by 18 by 12 and on paper towel and they have um the the way that you have to, in my opinion, set them up is so that they have something to grab onto should they flip over. So like everything in their enclosure has like cork texture. 
Okay. So that because it's it's lightweight, so if it falls or anything, it can't hurt them. And also, um, it can act as a hide and also a bit of enrichment because I still want them to be able to climb if they want to, right? And like they do, like my gecko Gilly, she'll climb on top of her humid hide, which is like a good, like, I mean, it's like this high off the ground. So it's kind of impressive that she's able to do it. I'll just like find her sitting there. I'm like, okay. So I still want them to be able to have some level of enrichment, right? So it's important to have that, but also an element of like, this is lightweight. It's not going to crush them if they knock it over somehow. Um, you know, like in the most extreme uh, circumstance with enigma, enigma syndrome, they're spinning around, they're losing their balance, falling over. Are they turning up on their back as well? So yeah, I'll, sometimes I'll like come in the room and I'll see a gecko that has just flailed over and they're on their back and they have to right themselves. And then once they do, they're fine. Um, you know, death rolling is like the most severe symptom of enigma syndrome. And it typically happens when they're really stressed. So like part of the reason I keep them on paper towel is because like if a water droplet gets on the paper towel, it's absorbed quickly. Um, whereas if it's on like they were on tile or kitchen cabinet liner or something that doesn't absorb as quickly or dry out as quickly, the if they touch the water droplet, that introduction of um, like stimuli will stress them out and they'll flail or death roll or spin or whatever. And so everything has to be kept... Yeah, everything has to be kept at a very calm level. And And static. mm -hmm. And so no bright lights, no flashing lights, no loud noises, no sudden movements. Um, Everything in the enclosure kind of tailored to their needs. So the kind of minimalistic decor, but also still kind of cluttered enough that if they were to fall over, they can quickly grab onto something and write themselves like a cork, for example. Um, you know, so all their basic needs are met, but like, there's not too much more you can really do in the way of enrichment for them. Because if I put substrate in there, oh, they're just gonna, the, the texture of it would just constantly, you know, it's a sensory nightmare for them. So they would just overreact to it all of the time. And especially like, a good like four months of the year is breeding season. Oh, I don't breed. So I call it ovulation season. And most of my enigmas are female, which is because they have that heightened stress level. Mm-hmm. They'll exhibit more symptoms or they'll have more of a, a syndrome. Plus some of them have been bred or some of them were purchased for the intention of breeding. Um, and so I end up with uh, a lot of female enigmas, which is very stressful this time of year because ovulation season just started. Um, but so their symptoms when, are just elevated. It's it, that's when they're at their worst. Like that's when I, if I, when I consider like euthanasia for them, which is another separate topic that we can definitely talk about. But when I consider like, is it time to, you know, if, are they still having enough quality of life compared to not? It's during ovulation season. And I have to remind myself that like, this is a temporary, they go back to normal afterwards, but yes, yeah, it's a hard time of year for them because they, they're just overreacting to their own body. They lose weight quickly, even if you're doing, you know, increased feedings because that's how female leopard geckos are. So, and I have had one gecko who no matter what, no matter how much calcium and food you give her, um, she can't have UVB because she's a bell albino. She has literally just solid red eyes and she's an enigma. So like she cannot have UVB. She can't have like light. Um, so, you know, with, with my, my vet, we've like, we've ruled out like no matter how much calcium that we've been able to, to introduce into her before, or like, of course she has calcium regularly, but extra during ovulation season. She's still, even with two or three different humid hides, different, um, substrate to to dig in for egg laying, she becomes egg bound like every single every every other year when she decides to have eggs. And it's just really frustrating. And there's no, nothing you can really do except to give calcium, 
be patient. Like she passes them, but she holds on to her eggs longer than she needs to for sure. And wow. it's, it's stressful. And so eventually like her and Roz, my other gecko who also decides to lay eggs as an enigma, which is really frustrating, that Roz is a white and yellow mixed with enigma. So she's like extra special. Um, you know, they both are my cases of like, if I, if I have to, to euthanize an enigma, um, you know, anytime soon, it's going to be one of those or both of them, just because the fact that they decide to lay eggs and it's such a catalyst for increased syndrome for them. Wow. Is there, is there any one animal, anyone other leopard geckos who is the, the most difficult to care for the most causes you the most stress or would it be one of those two? I feel like it definitely varies. I'm so used to like being stressed out by enigmas that like, you know, doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me as much anymore. Um, I think, I think when it's new, right? Like when I got my white tree frogs and I set them up in a bioactive and it was so great. Um, cause I got them for a situation of rehoming. Um, and then they ended up with parasites because it was their first time being in a bioactive. And I was like, cool. Cause like they had the parasites already. Um, but the previous owner had kept them on a bioactive and had had them fine. So I was like, cool, I'll put them in a bioactive. And then nope, just the introduction of like being the, the uh, parasites being able to breed in the environment. They were like, cool, we'll just, we'll become a problem. So then that was like a good six months of trying to treat uh, parasites and white tree frogs to this day that I'm still, I still treat them every so often. And it's just like, I think every single time there's like a new thing I haven't dealt with, that's what I find stressful. Mm-hmm. But I don't think in general, I have one animal that's like right now, I'd say my tegu is my, is my stressor because we're working on taming and she's got a big attitude. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that, that's, that's, that's my challenge. stressor right now. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're able to manage all the, the disabilities and disorders. And I guess each animal is very specific as far as, especially on the leopard gecko side, they're all very specific. Like earlier, we were mentioning how do I care for the neurologically disabled ones compared to the, the normal or regular ones. Like it literally varies from gecko to gecko. Like I have some geckos that have neurological issues that are in 36 by 18 by 12 enclosures. So they're in like full, like, 33 gallons or whatever it is. And, you know, they can't have substrate, but they are still having more space and they can do okay. And then I have some who, you know, who have some issues that are not neurological and they can have substrate. You know, it literally is care catered to each individual gecko. Like I have a really massive leopard gecko named Tywin who has reproductive health issues. And so I keep him on paper towels so I can make sure that he doesn't get impacted in his femoral pores or his hemipenes or anything like that because he gets uh, hemipene plugs. But like, it's literally catered to each individual gecko. Mm. And even now, like I'm planning to move uh, to another state in a few months and I'm working with a company to get some leopard gecko upgrade enclosures because that's like the last round of upgrades I have to do till I start my round of upgrades over again. Um, and so I'm like looking at getting like 12 or 15 enclosures at one time, which is really fun and really great. But it, it makes me sad that only that many of my geckos can have that type of enclosure. Right. Whereas I'll still have all of the other ones and like more simplistic things. And it makes me feel bad. Like when people ask like, why aren't you keeping those with UVB? I'm like, cause I can't like, they, yeah. can't, they can't have the bright light. It'll stress them out. You know, it's just, it's a big bummer. So like I do, I do what I can for the ones that are able to have whatever they can, if they can have substrate or if they can have UVB or if they can have heat from above or if they can have a bigger enclosure. But there's just, there's just too many that have to have a more simplistic level of care. And as much as I'd love to give them something different, it would be to their detriment. Yeah. Are there any other morphs that cause problems? I think we talked about the white and yellow, the enigma. And I think I heard you mention lemon frost. Uh, I, lemon frost. I have That's no idea what that one. is. Yeah. What's that one all about? 
So lemon frost for me is actually pretty fun because and I don't mean fun like hee hee ha ha. I enjoy that they have cancer. It's fun for me because I actually got to see it from the start because I've been in the community long enough to have seen when it you know first originated. So uh, when I went to my first Timley and ARBC in 2016, I saw the very first lemon frost sold um, at auction. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And like, I was like, wow, that's exciting or whatever. Um, and then literally just a year later, there's this huge uproar in the community of people who've been breeding these geckos because within like, I don't know, just like nine to 12 months of life, they're showing visible tumors. And people are like, well, what's happening? And they people started talking, realizing it wasn't just one line, it was multiple lines. And so it wasn't just one, like when people mix lemon frost with something else, it was still happening in those geckos anyway. So they decided to have them um, humanely euthanized and necropsied. I think it was a group of like nine of them or something that were donated to this to figure out what was wrong with them. And they were noticing that um, they were aridophomas or aridophoromas. They're like aridophore um, pigment cells that cause structural changes in an animal. And they were causing tumors on the outside and the inside of the geckos. And they were literally only nine to 12 months old, or maybe a little bit older, but that's when like they would first notice them. So like within the very, very early life for this lemon frost, um, they're having, they're having cancerous tumors and people pretty much stopped breeding them right then and there. I mean, most people in the U.S. anyway. There's definitely still some people breeding them, um, definitely abroad. Uh, there's also people still breeding them in the U.S. And then from what I've heard on the down low, shipping them overseas to sell them because they're, they're not going to sell them here. There was someone that actually sold theirs to Petco and Petco was selling them for $400. Oh I'm like, what? This is ridiculous. Like, I, I that's a whole thing on its own. I was like in contact with with Petco, like on the phone with one of their people saying like, this is why it's bad. And then never heard from them again, but whatever. Um, but yeah, just extremely disappointing. It's good to see the people that stopped bringing them who offered refunds on people who or for re refunds for people who bought them. Um, but there's also like a level of, you know, someone had to notice this before these geckos started being bred. Like I'm wondering if the first couple lemon frosts that were produced, like one of them died just a couple of years into life. You don't think that's suspicious? Yeah, like, no kidding. <laughs> literally. Like, and then so they, I think it was the female that died a couple of years into life because it was um, a random genetic mutation from like a normal pair of geckos. And then and what, what is it? What does it look like? Is it just yellow or like high yellow? I mean, it's, it's extremely like, it's yellow, but it's like so vibrant and like at the same time pastel, like the way that it's, it kind of the yellow creeps onto their underside and it looks, it looks different. Like it doesn't look like regular yellow. Like I don't know how to explain it. They're really, they are really stunning. Um, and they would call it lemon frost because the eye trait that happens with them is the eyes are like this crazy light blue like almost frosty. And then the like visual traits on top of the eye are really crisp and clear. So you have these geckos with like extremely like saturated, but also kind of pastel yellow um, all over the body, including like their normal markings and stuff too. And then you have these really vibrant eyes and it's just, they're definitely different looking for sure, mm. but also cancerous. And I have a lemon <laughs> frost um, who had a, a tumor prior to coming here. And then for four years, that tumor did not grow. And I was so happy. And then recently it's been growing pretty rapidly. So he's going to be a, he'll be a, a euthanasia at some point in time, unfortunately. 
Yeah, because you can't just keep continuously removing his tumor. I mean, eventually you can't remove them at all. It's oh, you can't on his them. face. Oh, okay. So yeah, you just the tumors. Wait. Yeah, the tumors are unfortunately usually like on the face um, or in the head of the gecko. Um, some they'll also be internal, but you can't see those ones. Right. So like that's. So when you said it came to you with a tumor, did did it come to you with like you could you could visually see it, and you're saying for four years it didn't grow anymore, and now it started to grow. Yeah. So. The gecko, like I was able to kind of map out the gecko's like life and being sold from one breeder to the other or whatever. And like, okay, so at this age is when the tumor was first noticed or when the gecko was sold to someone else because it had the presence of a tumor. Um, and then at that point was being kept by someone who then sent it to me as a free pet only, you know, have a life here. Um, and I was excited to have a lemon frost because you know, we haven't really seen people keep them for a long time without breeding them or euthanizing them. Right. And I wanted to see like, what is the, there are some people, don't get me wrong. Um, but there's also some geckos who haven't had a tumor develop, but it's very few. Um, but I wanted to see what the longevity would look like. And so I've had him since 2018. Um, and I would say in the last like few months is when I've noticed he has a tumor right on the underside of his jaw. And that's when I've noticed it you know, it's gotten bigger for sure. Mm. His behavior is the same, but the tumor has gotten bigger. And so that'll just, eventually it's just going to be euthanasia case because there's no way to surgically remove that in a way that they won't grow back because it's structural. So it's in the, like a rid of four pigment cells, which there's like different kinds of pigment cells that cause visual, um, visual properties in reptiles and the iridophore ones uh, are structural. So like, mm -hmm. that's why they're growing tumors because it's uh, something wrong with those pigment cells. And like, you can't remove pigment cells from an animal. So like, they're just going to continue to develop them as they get older or like the tumors will just grow, you know? Wow. I, I kind of want to touch a little bit on the euthanasia piece as well, because I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting topic. But before we do, are there any other morphs that, that you have to deal with that are, are those like the major three for leopard geckos? Yeah, I mean, I can give you a few more, but people are going to get salty in your comments. I don't care. Let's get, let's have okay. it. So super snows, super snows or, or any sort of um mix with a super snow. A lot of times they'll have like smaller bodies, like they don't grow as well. Um, or they'll have like structural integrity issues. Like I have two super snows where like their bones stick out unnaturally. So like one of mine has like his spine sticks out from his body and his shoulders are really like boxy and he kind of walks a little bit different. And he also has like an arrow shaped head instead of having like a rounded head. His, oh, I hit my elbow. His, his ears are like pointed, like, you know, he so it looks like his head shaped like an arrow because his ears are pointed out, which is really weird. And then I have another super snow. I have two super snows that are like generally okay, but they both have kind of pinched faces. Um, and this can cause issues like retained shed in nostrils, which I've had to take both those geckos to my vet. My vet has had to like very gently with like lidocaine on their nose, like maneuver to get like months and months of stuck shed out. And this is before they came to me. So like this my geckos, uh, Rainies and Aria, both of them. Um, one of them's just super snow, another one's super snow mixed with Enigma, of course. Um, and so just recently, it took Rainies was surrendered to me in the summer, and then in the winter, I noticed her nose looking funny, and I was like, To the vet, we go. And my vet popped out the shed, but it took her like a good 10 15 minutes to get it out. I couldn't get it out at home. I was like, wow. That's a that's a job for my vet right there because they've got the resources. I love my vet, you know, they've got the things I don't have on hand. 
you know, she's got the experience of being able to gently maneuver the nose of a little leopard gecko. So I do what I can, but like, she's a great resource. Um, but because of their like pinched faces, they sometimes have retained shed there. And then you also have ones that have other facial effects, like my gecko Benjen is another super snow. Um, again, he's mixed with some other things. So that's where it gets complicated. Like he's mixed with white and yellow, but he literally has such a severe underbite that like he can't have substrate even in his humid hide because he will just shovel it into his face. Wow. Um, and he has a really flat skull. And this is something like years ago when I first got him, I would like read through Facebook groups of leopard geckos and see people who also had these morphs also saying like, hey, why is my gecko's head so flat? Like, Because you don't really notice it unless you get to compare it to another gecko. Right. And so people who had like a super snow and then they would have a, a different gecko like, why is his head shaped like this? Why is his head so flat? Um, but yeah, so because that, I think of inbreeding is what caused the problem with super snows because there's some super snows that look okay. Um, but then so is that what that the breeders really will wanted. say? Like, oh, it's just specific to the animal. It's not specific to the morph, which I guess technically is probably true, but it's also the inbreeding yeah, is because of the not. morph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's the problem. And that's part of where the, the frustration from people comes from because then people will just take what I've said. They'll just hear super snow, super snow bad. And then they'll go back to a breeder and be like, that's what my friend said. Super snows are bad. And then I'll get, you know, people being upset with me in the comments. And I'm like, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. You know, just like white and yellow. I was like, there are some lines that are good, some lines that are bad. Um, and unfortunately with super snows, I think probably inbreeding or just choosing geckos that shouldn't have a bred in the first place. Like if you see a gecko born and it doesn't have the best physical stature, don't breed it. Yeah. You know, you're just going to perpetuate that issue throughout the line. Um, but yeah, that's definitely a problem. Um, Max Snow Blizzard is another one, but that's just because they're really mean. Like every every person I know has had a Max Snow Blizzard. They have like temperament issues. They're like really skitty, really like jumpy and agitated. They like to bite. Um, they just so for me, whenever people are asking about morphs, I'm like, just stay. They look cool, but steer clear of that one. Interesting. Um, and that's like every person I've met who's had one says they're like that. They just got attitude, and I'm like, where? I wonder where that comes from. But whatever. Um, and then. Be wary of people who talk about, um, what's it like, giants and like super giants of leopard geckos. Because a lot of times they're just obese. Um, they'll just, you know, they'll get a gecko who is naturally large and then they'll just fill it to the brim, like until they're about fit to burst. And then they'll be like, wow, look at this crazy 130, 140 gram gecko. And it's like, if the gecko is healthy and like, you know, it's huge, fine. Like call it whatever you want. But a lot of people will try to conflate it by making the gecko obese and saying like, oh, it's super giant, you know, come get it. Because yeah, I guess yeah. having a bigger one is cooler somehow. Um, <laughs> but I've also noticed that in, and this is something that me and like a breeder friend of mine years ago talked about because we both had, um, we both had giant males, but like the, the larger males, I think have an I have a harder time managing their own reproductive health issues. So like my, my gecko Taiwan, I mentioned earlier, like he's unable to manage his own like um, femoral pores or his hemipene plugs. So like that's something I have to manage for him. And it's something that she also had to do with her, her larger um, male giant. So interesting. So there's something not quite right there. Yeah. It's just, maybe it's just their body is too big for them to comfortably be able to get to their to their event to be able to to work on what they have to work on or like yeah, maybe yeah. they just maybe maybe there is they naturally because they're larger maybe they produce more i really i couldn't say for sure um these are more like anecdotal like from my own experience or from people i've i've heard experiences from whereas like enigma obviously is a very clear-cut thing 
Yeah, but it's still good to hear, especially when somebody you know you've dedicated a lot of time to to looking after animals who have problems and and uh, like I said, this is the stuff that gets swept under the rug. So it's nice to be able to have somebody who's honest and talks about it and say, here's some of the things. And you know, there's lots of these animals that are in rescue. So there's probably people listening right now that that would be willing to rescue an animal with a clear neurological disorder or, you know, some sort of physical disability. And it's nice to know that it's possible to care for them and that, you know, as long as it's going into a pet only situation, that, that that's a good thing. As far as the euthanasia goes, is there, you know, you, you talked about with the tumor, that's, uh, that, that's where that line would get crossed. And do you have a a clear understanding of where the line is for you as far as like, you know, when an animal's life maybe shouldn't continue on, or is that just too nuanced? Uh, it obviously would go like animal by animal. Um, my, I actually had to euthanize my bearded dragon Franklin last year because he had, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. So my vet and I, for like a few months worked with getting different blood tests done. And, um, we were worried about his blood glucose levels. And so we did, um, we did a barium x-ray, which for a bearded dragon takes like three days because it has to pass through them. So like barium is something that they'll have an animal swallow and then they'll take x-rays throughout the digestive process to see how it moves through the system. Because bearded dragons and other reptiles digest slowly compared to like a dog, I had to take him to the vet and bring him home for three days in a row so he could stay there all day and have, have x-rays done, which was pretty cool. But unfortunately, um, in addition to like, we are, had already believed he had... Um, GI tumor because of the symptoms he was having and also because of the elevated glucose levels. And then my vet was like, well, here's our options. She said, I'm not comfortable doing uh, this very risky GI surgery on a bearded dragon. She goes, I can send you to an, like an associate of mine who, who has done them, but they don't live long after surgery. So it's not like just statistically speaking. So it's not really worth the risk. Plus he's an older guy. Um, and then she was like, or we could just manage the symptoms and let him live out, you know, how, however long he has and then do euthanasia when the time comes. And so there's a bearded dragon rescue I follow on Instagram called SW Sutherlands. And she's great because she works pretty strictly with bearded dragons. She works with other things too, but she's able to have a lot of information and experience with, a lot of the genetic issues in bearded dragons that we're seeing because their gene pool is so very, like it's becoming very inbred because there hasn't been any new genetics for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she sees things like muscular dystrophy and also happens to see GI cancer or GI tumors in bearded dragons. So I asked her, I was like, or I don't know if I asked her or if I, I read a post that she had posted, but she said, normally they live one year after a diagnosis. So I was like, okay, like I have an understanding of that's how long I have with him. And I had a little over a year. I think I had maybe like a year and a half. Um, and then he stopped eating and he was looking real unhappy. And I was like, that's time. So like, for me personally, it comes down to like, can the animal eat? Can the animal shed? Can the animal, does, does it exhibit any like, um, interest in interacting with its environment, you know, and in a way that was like before, like for enigmas, obviously they interact with their environment differently than other reptiles or other leopard geckos that don't have enigma syndrome. But has it been a decrease from what I'm familiar with? You know, and if it has, then that's, then I call it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, how much are you this sort of changing the subject? But you must spend a lot on vet, on vet bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must be Fortunate, a, a never going thing. My vet is not very expensive. A visit is like 60 bucks. Um, Franklin's. All of Franklin's bills together, like the different blood tests that he had, the barium x-ray tests, euthanasia and everything, probably around a grand, okay. um, which sounds like a lot, but like 
it could be a lot worse. <laughs> like it could very well be worse when you're having x-rays for three days done. Like that was a dog. It'd be way more than a grand. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm very lucky um, to have had like a pretty affordable vet. Um, and also lucky that like a lot of things that like, you know, that she does for me aren't super um, expensive, like getting antibiotics, for example. It's only like 20, 30 bucks on top of an exam. It's less than a hundred dollars spent the vet. You know, it's not so bad. Um, but yeah, oh, it adds up. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. this is your, like, this is your life's work. This is your business, mm-hmm. you know? So, and the vet bills are a part of the business that doesn't, especially for you, because you're not selling animals, you're not breeding. It's just purely an expense. It's not like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to invest in this uh, vet visit in order to hopefully have us breeding stock and healthy animals. It's just like, it's just part of the expense. So uh, I, I want I want to give people an idea of how, how many animals you're caring for. We talked about leopard geckos. You have, you know, 35 or so leopard geckos, but what else do you have under the roof and, and how, how much work is this? It's so much work. Um, it is literally a full-time job that you don't get paid for. In fact, it's a full-time job that robs you of money. Um, <laughs> and like, like you were saying, like, I don't, I don't like breed or sell animals and everything like that. It's, it's something I've talked about for a while with different people in the community. Like, does anyone have any ideas of how I can monetize this better? I don't breed or sell animals. So that's not it. Um, a lot of people will open like, um, like a pet shop or something. I'm not interested in, in selling pet products. You can find a bazillion other places. Um, so there's like a, just a few different things I've seen people do in order to like monetize their animal keeping and like make it more sustainable for them. And I haven't found that yet. I'm working on it, <laughs> but I haven't found that yet. And I'm, so I just, I, I believe in what I do so wholeheartedly that I just, I believe that like any sort of struggle, like, like monetarily, I wouldn't say like I'm struggling, but I also don't. I spend everything on my own personal bills and the reptiles. Like there's, there's nothing that I'm saving for like, Oh, like I want to have another hobby. Mm-mm. I don't yeah. get another hobby. It's and just, just so the reptiles. listeners know that like your, your, this is your job. Your income comes through the content mm-hmm. creation and that goes into feeding yourself, <laughs> paying your bills and caring for the animals. You don't have a, yes. a nine to five <laughs> that's helping it. Not anymore. No, I did before the pandemic, but then I lost it when the pandemic happened, like a lot of people. And then I was just like, well, I literally can't leave my house. Like, I wonder what else I can do. Like I just, so I just pushed full force into content creation across different platforms. And um, like, it's, it's definitely paid off having the extra time and effort to put into that other than having, you know, not having the the job anymore, but it's been hard. Um, And like, I certainly wouldn't like recommend Oh, I want to start a sanctuary. Let me make content creation my only form of income. But like, you know, after doing this for years, it's able to be something that's sustainable. It just takes a long time to get it there. And I, of course, I would love to get to a place where I have like, just, you know, oh, I want to pick up another hobby that might cost money. Like right now, any hobbies I have do not cost money because everything and like all, I wouldn't say all my money, obviously, because I have like my own bills that I pay, right? And I buy my groceries and student loans and yada, yada. Um, but any, any money that would be considered fun money is pretty much reptile money. You know, it's for building an enclosure. It's for, it's for like investing in like I'm moving. So I have to save money to get the electrical of the new house checked and put new drywall in the reptile room, which will be like, it's a whole basement that we're moving all the reptiles, into, which is very exciting, but um, getting new drywall and stuff. So like everything in one way or another comes back to reptiles, you know? Yeah. And I have, 75 of them, I think, which is a lot. It's like an absurd amount that I I didn't originally plan on. Just kind of happened this way. Um, but I don't feel like overwhelmed by the amount. It's reptiles like in general. I think if I had 75 bearded dragons, I would be insane. 
Right. Like I think there's different there's different levels of of output for reptiles, right? Like there's no way I'd ever want another tegu. I'm good with one. Like she she takes a lot of energy and work and time. Just one is fine with me. But then I have some reptiles who like I don't really I don't really spend too much time with because they prefer I don't like my crested geckos. Like they don't like me. They don't want me around them. Like I feed them and I spray them and I build their enclosures and I clean them and stuff. But that's that's about as much energy as they want me to put into into being around them. You know. So like it definitely just depends on the types that you have for sure. But you don't keep any snakes, I don't think. Like like you're. I keep, have. Oh, you do two garter two okay. garter snakes. Yeah. So you are, I mean, even, and garter snakes are on like the high spectrum as far as like the amount of feeding and whatnot. It's not like you have boas like me. I just fed my boas yesterday for the first time since December 1st. <laughs> you know, It's like I, I changed their water and stuff, but it's not, and, and I only have six animals or so. So even to say you have 75, even if they are oh. low maintenance, they're still lizards and geckos that need feeding and watering every single day or almost yeah, every day. I would say, yeah, my whole, my whole, um, every evening, um, is spent reptile care for sure. Um, I get like, there's a couple days a week where I don't have like evening, uh, reptile chores, but for the most part, like it's those days are like spent, I'll like hang out with my boyfriend or something or like, mm. they'll just spend some me time. Um, but like the day is spent, like usually content creation or taking care of like the diurnal lizards, um, you know, making, prepping food and things like that, feeding the insects and the, but the evenings is where it's busy. But yeah, it's definitely a lot of time. Like, I mean, comparable to a full-time job for sure. Like it's, there's cleaning enclosures, feeding reptiles, making sure they have enrichment time, planning out new builds, and planning to move to make sure that I can do upgrades for a lot of them, how everyone's going to fit in the basement. You know, like, yeah, it's a lot of time for sure. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. And, and you, you sort of get forced into the content creation as well. Obviously that pays your bills. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at the end of the day, sometimes you just do not feel like doing that, but you kind of have to in order to get a paycheck. Yeah. There's definitely times where like, I don't want to talk about reptiles. I yeah. just want to like do or be something else for a little bit. And it's like, that's the positive of having like, when I do TikToks or reels or shorts or whatever, it's, it's all pre-filmed. I don't have to think about it. I just have to post it. Right. But then like sitting and making long form content, like where I have to have like B-roll footage of the reptiles and I have to think of a topic and I have to script the video. And it's like that, that level of like, I don't know, passion for YouTube is non-existent in me right now. <laughs> like between, just between like, like caring for the reptiles is a lot of work, but then there's also the added element of like, right now I'm planning to move. And so that has really made a big difference in like the, the way that my life looks time-wise. Um, but it'll all be worth it because then all the reptiles will be in the same space, which is what I really want because right now they're across three different rooms. Um, and so it'll just, it'll be worth it for upgrades. Like I'll be able to keep the leopard geckos in bigger enclosures. And so all well, the ones that can have it anyway. Um, and, you know, I'll be able to upgrade some other animals and it'll just be like a nice finished space with just reptiles in it. And then the rest of the house can just be Jessica house, you know, can just be non-reptiles. You were saying that you were trying to come up with other monetization ideas as well. And I don't, I'm not sure if you're comfortable ta talking about those or, or sharing those ideas, but it is an interesting idea because there's quite a few people who have these rescue situations or end up coming into a situation similar to yourself where they're caring for animals or, or getting animals off Craigslist and whatnot. And that is a challenge. It's like, how do you create cash flow? Are, are you, do you have any ideas that you're willing to share or are those still kind of in the works? It's okay if you well, don't want to share. No. Um, I mean, anything that you can sell to people. Um, so like if you can, I don't know if you can make and sell shirts, if you can make and sell products for people to put in their enclosures, you can do any of that. Like I'm, I have no time to, to do that. Um, I've considered like 
I have a lot of extra reptile shed. Maybe I will be like, you know, I'll, I'll jar up some or I'll turn it into jewelry or whatever and sell that. But like too busy to do that right now. The important thing for, for people who run like a sanctuary or people who do rescues, it's like get your 501c3, um, become like recognized. And then like, you'll have probably more of an influx of like donations and things like that. But because I'm moving across states, I haven't done mine yet. So I'm waiting till the move is done. And then mm. once that's done and I'm like set up there, I'll start the 501c3. I'll also start doing educational programs, which should be a, a source of income as well. But yeah, currently I'm just like stuck because it's just waiting for other things to get done before I can start those things. Yeah, yeah. And I, I totally know what you mean when you just become, you exhaust yourself with reptile related things. And I I only have the six animals, like, like I said, but of course, a lot of my day is reptile related, whether that's on yeah. Instagram or doing the podcast or editing. And, and, and then quite often when I leave this room, reptiles are not on my mind at all. Or some people are like insanely obsessed with them and, and the, the, it's like a very big part of their life. And of course, it's a huge part of my life as well, but you mm-hmm. burn yourself out on just thinking about it. Yeah. Like people are always asking me what other reptile podcasts I listen to. And I'm a, a lot of times I'm like, I don't listen to a lot of them because I just, <laughs> I, I, I would love to, but by the time I leave this basement, I don't want to hear anybody talk about a snake or a gecko or anything. I just want to do some other thing. Literally same. People are always asking, who are your favorite reptile content creators? And I just list my friends because I don't watch anybody. Like (laughs) I I dedicate so much of my time and thinking to like reptiles that like when it comes time to relax and put on YouTube, I'm not picking reptile content. Like it's got to be something really special or like something I'm really interested in for me to click on it and want to watch it. Otherwise, mm -mm, I, I don't watch. I didn't even know. Like when I started reptile YouTube, it was by accident. Like you, Instagram didn't allow you to post videos and people kept asking me like, Oh, I want to see all your geckos. I want to see all your enclosures or whatever. So I would post that on YouTube and then I would never check it. I just would post it and leave it. And then one day someone was like, you have a thousand subscribers. No I was way. like, word. I was like, word. <laughs> and they were like, and one of my videos had like 70,000 views. I was like, okay, I guess I'll like do this then. And then just decided to become a reptile YouTuber. I didn't even know there was like a community of reptile people until after I did that. That is funny. So, you, wow. So you like hit the, for the people who don't have a YouTube channel, I think the threshold to like even monetize, you have to hit a thousand subscribers if I'm remembering correctly. Back and then when I started it in the old days. Oh, uh, was it the 4,000 hours or? that? No, there was no, that when I joined, when I had already gotten my 1,000 subscribers and like however many views or whatever, you could monetize no matter what. Like okay. you could, that rule didn't start until like the second year I was doing YouTube. So what year would that have been? What year did you start posting just inadvertently? So, so 2017 is when I posted just like randomly. I would, and I'm telling you, like <laughs> poorly edited. Like I just would put stuff up. Didn't even put anything in the descriptions or anything. Are those um, videos still then, up? Probably not. Those are probably private. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so people can't go dig through them. Yeah, there's definitely some old content up, like from 2018. But I think the the stuff that's really old is. And it's like, plus my husbandry was different then. And it's like, I don't want people to get the wrong idea and think that's like an yeah. okay level of, of keeping or whatever, which is like the struggle I had with YouTube for years. I was like, every time I, I would build a new enclosure, I would uh, private the old video. That's a good way to clear your channel. Like you shouldn't be doing that. And I was, yeah. but I was so, I was so, I don't want anyone to think that this is my current husbandry like focused. So now I'm, I'm over that now. I'm just like, if someone comments on an old video, I'm like, that's on you. This is posted three years ago. Find yeah, something exactly. new. I'm Look still posting. Date. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I just was like posting because Instagram didn't allow you to post videos. I think you could post videos long, not longer than a minute then. And I was like, well, that's not helpful for me. I need people who've been asking me to post something longer. So I like made the channel in like 2015 and I didn't ever touch it or do anything with it until 2017. And that's when I posted like 
just a couple random times. And then I never went and checked on it. Like I didn't think about it. And then one day, like I went to post again and it was like, congrats, you hit a thousand subscribers. I was like, okay. And then I like (laughs) scrolled through the videos and there was like some that had like thousands of views. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll just do this now. So then in the beginning of 2018 is when I was like, I'll, I'll take this more seriously. And so I posted like every single week. Um, and like got to watch the numbers grow, of course, and stuff. But that's when I found out there was even a Repsol community on YouTube. I didn't even know like pet YouTube existed. Mm-hmm. And this is back in like when it was like blowing up, like 2017, 2018, probably even 2016 before I got into it was when like some of the original like OG names got like thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers. Because yeah. it was just like, that was the era of like meet all my pets. You know, um, those type of big videos, right? So I didn't even know that existed until I was like on Twitter. And then I was like, I wonder if there's other reptile people. And then I found them and I was like, oh my God, there's a whole community of of pet YouTubers. I'm like, how did I not know about this? Yeah, that was a very interesting time. It was kind of short-lived in a, in a way, but all of a sudden Meet All My Pets was like, you know, zero to a million subscribers uh, over a couple of months. And it was just the yeah. way, I guess the algorithm was pumping that. Yeah. And it's also like when you when you put like a number in the thumbnail, people are like, you have how many? Like, there's no way. And people will click on it, obviously. Um, yeah. It was a, YouTube was a completely different landscape uh, for pet YouTube back then than it is now. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. And so, so let's talk a little bit about your your latest video you posted last week or the week before. Obviously, mm-hmm. you, you had some hard times in the reptile room and just in general. And I kind of wanted to spend... Maybe you can kind of give people like a little, we don't have to dwell on the deaths or yeah. anything too much, but you can give people a little summary. But also, I, I just want to focus on that sort of the anxiety of keeping this many animals. And I think a lot of people think that they can just have a large group of animals and, and they don't realize how much stress it can cause. So so why don't we start with just a summary of what's going on? So first and foremost, before I like, you've, you've heard me say on this podcast, like, oh, I have 75 reptiles. I don't recommend that like 110%, I don't recommend it. Like unless you, unless you do it slowly over time, like I'm doing it almost a decade. Um, so unless you do it slowly over time, your heart is really into it and you have the resources, you know, one simple change in your life can make you unable to care for that many reptiles. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm very aware of that. And that's part of where my anxiety comes from. Um, but yeah, I, so recently my bearded dragon Nova died. It was extremely sudden, like the most sudden reptile death I've ever had. Like I've mentioned earlier, I have a great exotic vet. And, um, so anytime I've ever had like the inkling that a reptile is not, is not performing at their normal level, I take him to the vet. And cause she's, she's great about squeezing me in pretty quickly. Like she's, she's got all the resources I don't have. She's got the experience and the knowledge. And every single time, like typically it's, it's been pretty, pretty simple of a thing. Like, I was imagining things, unfortunately. Um, or, you know, it was just a gecko ovulating or something. And like the animal was fine. So for me to not have noticed anything with Nova, who I spend like a chunk of my day with every day, because she's one of the uh, lizards that's awake during the day. She'd come out of brumation and, you know, she was great. Appetite was fantastic. She was excitable. She was like running around the floor, of course, being supervised. Um, she was great. And then she ate on a Saturday and was normal and died on a Wednesday. Like it was that quick that I didn't even notice anything till the day of that she was that she was dying. And she had like the weird discoloration on her body. It was just her body getting darker because she was in her last stages of life, which I, I expected that to be the case. Um, and then, you know, there was obviously nothing that could have been done at that point. It's just the day of. Um, 
But my vet was actually moving clinics, which is a really stressful time too. So like I called and they were like, well, she doesn't have anything open, but call tomorrow morning and we'll squeeze you in. And of course, Nova didn't make it till the next morning. Yeah, extremely hard. I think for me personally, I don't like any animal death is hard. But like when it comes to euthanasias, I'm prepared for it. It's of course very sad. And I do a lot of crying in the, in the actual like vet room. Um, but it's expected and I'm making that choice. So it's in my control. When an animal dies and it's not in my control, that's when I find it like really traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially I don't when it's like sudden being, and unexpected. Yeah, I don't like being surprised. Like I'm the kind of person that I... And to have this many animals, you'd have to be. I'm extremely like schedule and routine oriented. I like my life to look the same week to week. You know, like I, my Mondays, all, all my feedings look the same every single day of the week, you know, of the following week. So like I'm on a schedule. Um, so when something happens as a surprise, it's different, like changes my, my lifestyle in some way. I don't like that. And so I had already had a few of those things happen in my personal life before Nova's death. And then also my vet moving clinics, I found that jolting because I'm like, oh, first I didn't know where she was moving to. So I was like, crap, I've just lost my exotic vet. Like that's horrifying. Um, fortunately she's only moving like 30 minutes away. So it's further, but it's still close. Having all those things and then Nova suddenly dying. And then there's a level of like, self-blame like i'm definitely one for i must have done something wrong this is a five-year-old bearded dragon there's no reason that she should not be alive at this time so like i clearly must have done something wrong or missed something um and i actually posted a picture of her the day that she was dying not of her but of her scales to be like anybody understand what's happening like obviously i'm going to contact my vet but just as like a you know reaching out to the community and gabby a friend of mine noticed orange spots on her body and was like, we just got a bearded dragon back uh, at the rescue or a biopsy back from the vet. That's uh, Those orange spots came out to be uh, aritiferomas, which we were talking about earlier with lemon frost, um, that would um, eventually cause tumors or were already causing tumors. And it was something that you couldn't treat. And I was like, cool. So like, I had noticed these orange spots on her. I never thought anything of it because I had never heard of this being a problem with bearded dragons. Um, that they sometimes do get like changes in color as they get older. And like, it was part of her body. Like it didn't look like a raised sore or wasn't flaking off. She was behaving normally, but she had like the couple different orange spots for like a year before she died. So I'm wondering if that was part of it. And I Mm -hmm. actually posted a video about that on Friday, just so people could be aware like to not repeat the same mistake as me. If you notice the difference, just take them to the vet. Just consult the vet. Like yeah. the, my vet might not have thought anything of it, right? Like if it's that rare, because Gabby said it was really rare, that my vet might not have thought anything of it anyway. And there's nothing you can do to treat it. But it's like, I wish I had, you know, just been more mindful of that. And like, it's very real that in reptile keeping, you will make a mistake. Like it is an unavoidable thing. You will make a mistake and you will end up regretting it. And the best thing you can do is like to help other people to not make a similar mistake and also to not repeat it for yourself in the future. But yeah, animal death is not not easy. Um, And like a lot of the deaths that I've encountered have come from things like genetic issues. So it's like keeping the way that I do, it's going to be something that I experience. And I've been fortunate to not have experienced that much loss. Like some of my friends have had more losses with less. And it's just an unfortunate thing that happens with reptiles sometimes, especially since they can hide it so well. So I count myself fortunate that I haven't, I haven't experienced as much loss as other people, but that doesn't make it any easier. Yeah. Yeah. And it still causes you that psychological anxiety right now that you're trying to manage Mm -hmm. all these animals and then try to create content and, and you can quickly feel probably fairly overwhelmed by the amount of work that you have and how, how scary it is to, 
like you said, it's hard not to blame yourself when something goes wrong. So suddenly you have 75 dependents that you, you could easily extrapolate. Like, what am I going to do now, next that's going to cause a problem? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's where my mind goes immediately is like, I always expect when one dies that there'll be another just because the unfortunate nature of like the way that I've had losses, they always happen in small groupings. Like just, just by sheer chance, like I would like a childhood dog would die or something. And then a week later, I'd have a gecko die. So like I always expect when one happens and this is really unfortunate to do that to myself because it's just no one has died since Nova. But like, who knows? Like it could. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it, it definitely puts me in a place of like fight or flight, high alert for like weeks at a time waiting for the next one. And so I can kind of like come down from that a bit. And yeah, it's, it's truly awful. Like, I mean, any pet loss is awful, right? But unexpected loss or loss where, you know, it's not like it was an older animal, you know, didn't see it coming or it wasn't like, wasn't like when I had a, I had a garter snake pass away. Um, I had taken in two garter snakes. One I still have from Craigslist. One was a juke. They're both juveniles, super small, like tiny, like the, the width of a pencil, like so small. And one of them had blister disease. Um, which I don't know if you know what that is or if people who are watching don't know, but it's basically where like they were kept on too dirty or too humid of a conditions and then they had blisters form on their body that are just like fluid filled and it's a bacterial infection. So I had to give this tiny 11 gram snake injections. Wow. Mm-hmm. Had to feed them extra to make sure that they could recover this tiny, this is my first experience with snakes too, mind you. Oh my God, that's terrible. Like I have this little Japanese rat snake that came to me at 13 grams and it's just so tiny. Like I can't imagine trying to hold it and it stays still long enough in order to, to give it an injection. Mm-hmm. It's not a great time. My vet showed me how to do it and I was like, oh, that looks, she can do it. It'd be hard for me for sure. I had assistance at the time, like, um, like someone that I was with, like, you know, one of us held, one of us did the injection just so that we could, you know, make sure the snake was staying still. Because obviously a little tiny snake, like it doesn't want to be held like that. Yeah, we managed to treat with treat the round of antibiotics. All the blisters went away. The scales healed. The snake tripled in size. Took them back to the vet a couple months later for a checkup to get like a sex confirmation and also to like just get a, a wellness exam. And she was like, oh, it's a boy and he looks great. Wow, like you've done such a great job. He died two days later. Oh, for no <laughs> so reason, just, just like, out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he ate the day before, just completely normal, and then died the next day. It's like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Thing. Yeah, it just like, can happen, right? And uh, Yeah, and it's like after I just put all of this like money and effort and like m- mental energy into healing this very sickly baby snake. So like, this is that's one argument for like, buy from a breeder. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you, know? you don't know what but you're getting. Just, yeah, but it's just not what I do. And I also didn't want to leave this snake with someone who clearly gave them blister disease in the first place. Exactly. So. Well, and so it's, it's, it's just crazy to think of, yeah, how, how many, A, it's, that's why I like talking to people like yourself because sometimes I think when you, you know, you would fall into that like pet, pet tuber type category for people who mm-hmm. are, you know, you know, the old school guys that don't look at anything and they just see people like yourself and they might think it's all, things are too cute and, you know, there's no, nothing serious happening here. And then, you know, when, when you actually talk to someone like yourself, you realize how invested they are, time, money, energy, uh, how thorough you are about your care, how well you know the animals you're keeping. And it's just, it's some, t- I think there's a, I don't know if you feel this way, but there's all, there's a don't judge a book by its cover situation with a lot of people like yourself who are, you know, creating content in order to care for the animals that you're, you're all, they're also collateral damage of our hobby. So 
you're doing all these wonderful things and often you know we already talked about some of the messages you get from breeders for speaking out against these sort of mm-hmm. things and and uh i don't know that must just make you feel a little bit underappreciated yeah there's also the added element of being a younger person and a woman in the hobby yes. like there's that added element of like the hobby for a long time has been dominated by like older men um and so when they see someone like newer to the hobby they just kind of automatically are like that person doesn't know what they're talking about yeah. you know um instead of like we could learn from each other you know like there's definitely things that i've learned from breeders that i wouldn't have been able to learn from pet keepers and i think that there's and i did a podcast with a breeder once and we were you know just bouncing back and forth and he was like he was he's interested in talking to people like me because it's a new avenue for insight you know it's and i think that you know as much as like i don't like a lot of things that breeders do it's also not my personal life or personal choice and i have no control over it so like, you know, at just the very baseline of like, if we can learn from each other and we can help each other become better at what we do, like, I don't think that that's a, that that's a bad thing. But yeah, I do get a lot of like, um, people just seeing like, for, first of all, when they hear like pet YouTuber or I make pet YouTube content, especially if they've been in the hobby a long time, their mind automatically goes back to like people from like 2018, like some people who are problematic or whatever. And so I know a lot of pet YouTubers, myself included, like kind of hate that label. Um, because yeah, exactly. It, it, unf- it paints like an unfortunate brush uh, over people, especially especially if you're like younger and a girl too. Because there's been, unfortunately, people like like us are going to be the ones who get most criticism. Um, because older men don't really like, don't like the confrontation of, of younger people in the hobby uh, or younger women in the hobby just because society as a whole perhaps is not very fond of when a younger woman is doing something and they're successful. Um, you know, and it, especially if it contradicts what you do. And mm. then you have people that are kind of questioning what you do because they've seen what I do. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but like, it's just kind of the nature of how it is. Like, I don't really spend too much mental time thinking about it. You just have to do what you can to, to spread like positive education um, and hope that you reach as many ears as these people do. Yeah, that's it, it's so true. And I, I remember going through a similar thing early on in the podcast saying, you know, this person has no experience. He has no clue what he's talking about. And and at, at first I would get really offended and I find myself in like these Facebook arguments, like commenting back and forth. And now I really don't care. It doesn't make a difference yep. to me at all. But, and as some of the older breeders or keepers or reptile people who have been around for a long time, who they actually do spend time absorbing the content, whether it's this podcast or videos that you're creating. And they go, oh yeah, this is really interesting. And like you said, it's more of a collaborative effort and then they want yeah. to add stuff. And and so you, you end up finding the people who are really passionate and, and that that are part of this hobby and want to make it better. There's always going to be those strange people who are have been doing the same thing since 1992 and, yep. <laughs> and don't give a shit about what they're doing. Yep. Um, so as far as where you are right now, I... I if I understand correctly from your last video, you're just going to take a little break from content production, obviously, and even take a break from from taking in new animals. And to, to me, that seems like a, probably a good idea. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's going to help manage your life a little bit? Yeah. So I definitely have like over the last few years slowed down bringing, it, bringing animals in to begin with, but I also haven't said no very much. Um, like I had three leopard geckos come in in the span of like a month last year, um, like towards the end of the year. It's hard for me to say no when I know that like I have the capacity to, but I don't understand right now that I'm not in a, after, after Nova's death with the fact that I'm moving and some other like personal life changes, whatever, I know I'm not in a place to be taking in anything new and that won't be forever. Um, it's just where I'm at right now personally. And in terms of like pausing content creation, I will still be doing shorts content because 
I will never forgive myself if I waste my my opportunity for growth right now. Like I'm being pretty successful on on a number of uh, platforms where short form content is. So that I'm definitely not going to stop doing that anytime soon. Just because I know that like a year from now when I'm in like a a better place and I'm bringing animals in again or whatever, that I will be very upset with myself if I'm at like a lull in the algorithm because I decided to take some time off, which is really sad that that's how it works, that people don't feel like they can properly take time off. But that is just the reality of the situation. Yeah. Like when it comes to content creation. Um, so, but when it comes to like long form content, yeah, I'm definitely, I've already have slowed down. Uh, I used to post like once or twice a week. I've only been posting once every two weeks for the past few months. Um, so that's definitely still going to be the case, probably even less just because like there's just too much going on and I, I can't, you know, I can't pour myself into every one of these things as much as I used to. And the animals take priority, you yeah. know, like keeping them alive and safe and well, they take priority over content creation. Um, and part of like, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm moving and like this whole weekend I just spent working on the house that I'll be moving into. Um, so any of my extra efforts have to have to go there right now because that's where the reptiles and I are going to be living. And it's a very exciting thing for me because they'll all be in one space. I'll finally have one giant, massive reptile room of like my dreams, right? Um, which is exactly what I want. And then it will also have additional space. So I'll be able to take in new intakes and give my current intakes like, or my current reptiles like a bunch more space. Um, so like, I look at it as like a, a temporary sacrifice for the fulfillment of the future. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So then as far as your vision of the future, you have uh, a much larger room, more space, maybe bringing some more animals. And then it sounded like you said earlier, focusing more on some educational stuff. Is mm-hmm. that is that kind of where you see the, the path headed? Yeah. So where I'll be moving to is a bigger city than where I live right now. Um, and there'll be more opportunities for educating younger people about reptiles, which I think is something that's you know really exciting to me. And also be able to talk about some of these different things and an easier level like oh you know if you're interested in leopard geckos like here's some that you might want to uh, avoid you know like being able to educate in a way that's like in person with people especially now that the pandemic has kind of slowed down a bit um or even be able to focus more on making educational content because back in the day i used to make uh, i had a lot more time and i used to make care videos that were like almost two hours long like my my leopard gecko care video which I'm very proud of. It's like two hours long and it covers like pretty much everything you might need to know. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of like complete care guide. It's 16 minutes. I'm sorry. (laughs) Like I could talk about heat and UVB for 16 minutes. Like there's no way that, you know, you can do a complete care guide in that short of time. And that's kind of like what I was known for in like 2018, 2019. And I would really love to get back to that. But I've spent the last few years like building enclosures, doing upgrades and learning those sorts of things and taking in new intakes and, like trying out different types of things. But I'd really love to kind of get back to the basics of of, of that for posting um, like long form care content. I have a bunch of them scripted. I just have to have the time to sit down and film them because they take like three hours to film <laughs> and then go through and edit them because they take a long time to edit too. Um, and part of that is like, you can't put one of those out a week. Like I no. do not have the time. Right. So like if I'm taking time away from long form content, that gives me the ability to be able to put out these longer care content videos that are people still ask for to this day. Like, can you put out a long care from content for African fat cell geckos or tomato frogs or whatever, because that's, they want to know how I keep the species that I keep and how I've been able to do it for years without any issues. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. that sounds, that sounds pretty great. I, I I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think we've covered a lot of uh, great info here. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up? No pressure either way. Just if there's any last words. 
No, I don't think so. It's been great. Can Can you let everybody know where they can find you across all the, the wonderful social media platforms? Yeah, so I'm Justin's Animal Friends on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. I think that's it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. I really enjoyed learning all about the the uh, reptile disabilities and whatnot. And also, like I said, it's nice to hear a person like yourself talk and, and explain your, your, how, how passionate you are and, and how focused you are on this. And I think sometimes that doesn't come off in in the sh- especially short term form content and whatnot. So it, it's good to be able to to be able to pick your brain and learn from you. So thank you very much for joining me on the episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've actually waited this for a long time. Like I've seen some of my friends come on here. I'm like, one day it's my turn. Yeah. And it took us a while to get it sorted, but because uh, yeah. Christmas was crazy busy, but I'm very happy we were able to do it. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm, thanks too. All right. That is the end of that episode. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and telling your story and telling us all about the, the, the work that you're doing and the difference in the morphs and whatnot. And as I said, at the end of our conversation, you are obviously a very dedicated individual. You're a very knowledgeable individual. And I think we do have that issue in, in reptile keeping where people see people who are producing content on YouTube, very similar to yourself, and they just write them off as people who are just doing it for them, you know, to, to make money or they want to be a pet tuber and they don't have a, a good knowledge set. I don't think anybody could listen to this episode and come away with that conclusion. I think just hearing you speak, hearing about how passionate you are and how dedicated you are to the animals, I think all of that would dissolve. And, and that's, and you know, speaking to the listeners now, that's why I like to have people like Jessica on because sometimes it's hard to pick up on that from their YouTube videos, right? You know, even though Jessica could put together a two hour leopard gecko care guide, but in some ways, you know, when you hear somebody have a conversation with another person, you realize, wow, that person has, their heart is in the right, in in the, in the right point. And it's not, it's not that if you watch Jessica's videos, you're thinking, well, this person doesn't have um, her heart in the right spot. It's just sometimes you it's easier to tell through conversation. And I was really happy we were able to have such an in-depth conversation with Jessica today. If you're looking for more information on the podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find the show notes for all the episodes that have been created. Thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you click on the YouTube or the affiliate link in the YouTube description or the show notes, it'll take you to their website. You can browse there. If you do end up making a purchase, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me produce the show. You can also join us over at patreon.com slash animals at home if you would like to monetarily support the podcast on a monthly basis. I am deeply grateful for anybody who does that because it really is the difference between this podcast happening and the podcast not happening. So I appreciate that. And if you aren't interested in doing any of those, the best thing you can do, share it on social media, share it on Facebook, or you can actually rate on Spotify or Apple, rate the show. Those are really simple ways to help to help promote the show, grow the listenership, and it doesn't cost you anything other than a couple of minutes of your time, and I would be deeply grateful for that as well. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I cannot wait to share the next episode with you. I will see you then. <laughs>